For readers in England, I think this is a hidden history. People in England will relate to the IRA bombs that went off in Manchester or Warrington or in London, in Docklands. But they don't know about the bombs that went off in Dublin as part of this thing called the Troubles. That was Jack Byrne, author of the new novel, Across the Water. And I'm Martin Nutty, and you're listening to a check-in episode of Irish Stew. This episode of Irish Stew was brought to you by Murph Guide, the New York City nightlife website. Connecting the fun to the fun people. Visit MurphGuide.com. Hi, this is Martin Nutty with Irish Stew, and welcome to a bonus episode featuring Jack Byrne. Now, Jack was somebody we had on the podcast back in season two. If you're looking through our catalog, specifically, that was episode five of season two, which was released on March 29th. So welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Martin. It's nice to be back. And hello to everyone who's part of the global Irish community out there. So, Jack, I wanted to touch base with you um, about your upcoming book, which I believe is going to be released on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. The book's called Across the Water, and this is published, I assume, by Orthodox Press again, correct? That's right, yeah. It's the second in a series, uh, a trilogy, in fact. The next one should follow this, but the first one was called Under the Bridge, this one across the water, and the next one should be the morning after. Yeah, and last time we spoke to you, we talked about Under the Bridge and the locale, and these are mystery novels, of course, and the locale was in Liverpool, but now you've shifted locations. You're taking those same characters, the protagonist, if you will, of the original book, Vinnie Connolly, and his father, Paddy Connolly, and have moved them to Ireland. Yeah. It's a bit of a backwards movement, isn't it? Because <laughs> me, or well, my family, my parents, grandparents, and all came from Ireland across to Liverpool. And in this book, the, Under the Bridge was set in Liverpool, in the Irish diaspora, the Irish community in Liverpool. And this book, the second in the trilogy, goes back to Ireland, like you say. And it's a reference to that interrelationship, that connection between the people in places like Liverpool, but London, I'm sure, New York, Boston, with Ireland itself, because the links have never been cut. They still remain, and the book, I think, gets to grips with that. Yeah. Now, from what I recall from our earlier conversation, your dad is actually from Wicklow, am I correct? Is it Wicklow town? Because that's where a lot of the book is set. Yeah, it is from Wicklow Town, Strand Street. It's really weird thing. Uh, under the bridge was set in Liverpool. My dad was from a place called Strand Street in Wicklow. It's on called the Murrah, which is a kind of uh, spit of land between the sea and the town proper, and the river separates them. And I just did a thing on social media. My dad was from Strand Street. Anyone else in Liverpool? And you would not believe the number of people who wrote back saying, yeah, Strand Street. And it's just, for me, it was just a kind of really weird and definite focused connection of how over a space of time and geography, you put a pin in a map, if you like, and then just these leads spring off everywhere. It's amazing. So can I ask, did you spend 
meaningful time in your life in Wicklow? Was that something that the family did or was your connection much looser? It's much looser. Uh, Irish people are full of all different strengths of connection, if you like. One of the things that there's a romanticism about being Irish, being first, second, third generation, whatever it is, and people look back to the old country and people celebrate on St. Patrick's Day. One of the things that I was shocked to find out was the figure between 10 and 20% of emigrants from Ireland to the UK after the Second World War, between 10 and 20% had been through either the industrial schools, the laundry, or some kind of social crisis within Ireland. So that's not just economic migrants, people leaving to look for work, but people who suffered some kind of trauma because of their Irishness growing up in Ireland and moving abroad. And I know it's not great to talk about that, but for me, if we are you know, going to discuss Ireland, we'll get onto the trouble soon as well, then we have to puncture that romanticism because to deal with something, you have to try and deal with it honestly. So for me, the, the characters go back to Ireland from Liverpool and one of the strands, the narratives, is from the 1970s, and the other one is modern. But it was also looking at, why did my dad leave Ireland? My dad left after the Second World War. A wave of emigration to the UK and beyond. And I'm sure lots of your listeners will have parents who did the same. And so the question is, why did he leave? And so taking the book back to Ireland allows the narrative to examine that and say, what was life like, and why did people make such big moves? Yeah, there's a really interesting compare and contrast, because one half of the book is set in 1974, another half is set in 2010. And of course, in the space of that 30 years, Ireland has changed utterly, economic from an economic point of view. Not always for the better, but certainly a dramatic difference. Was economics playing as part of your thinking when you were putting this book together? Initially, yeah, because like after the Second World War. And it's interesting to think back through these things, which is a process I had to do, because you asked your first question, let me get back to that. We didn't have a strong connection. I think I went to Wicklow once as a kid. My dad took us back. It was myself and my youngest sister. There were eight kids, but I think only two, the two youngest went back, my mum and dad. And that would have been in the 70s, and it was a contested time. And I remember later on my mum saying that my dad got into a couple of arguments when he was back in Wicklow, and because he was coming back from England to Ireland. And there's that tension exists as well. It's not just welcome to the hearth and home. There's all kinds of things that bubble up. So I didn't have a strong connection, so I wanted to go back and look at that. And so, yes, the independent island wasn't a great place for in the 30s and 40s economically for people. Yes, independence had been won. What was it like in the villages and towns? And it was very difficult for lots of people. And moving abroad was one way of trying to fight for a living. I agree there. I think just simply the volume of immigration, certainly in the 40s and 50s in Ireland, is a testament to how difficult, how challenging life was in Ireland. And of course, it changes. Eventually, there's a realization some 50 years, almost 50 years after independence, that politically, the attempt to make Ireland, Ireland a kind of a more of an island than it already was economically, was an abject failure. 
And so Ireland all of a sudden does a pivot, to use that overused word, and becomes a very outward-looking country and engaged. But uh, yeah, uh, I guess what I'm curious about also in terms of this book, so you feature Dublin, you feature Wicklow, and obviously Liverpool is, is there in the background. How challenging is it to write about these places when you're actually not on the ground? How do you go about that as a writer? I think for me, definitely for me, part of it was confidence. Because the question you asked was, did I have a strong connection with Wicklow or was it more missing? I might not have visited Wicklow, but I grew up among people from Wicklow. And even if you're not in the town, the sensibilities, the attitudes, the culture go down from generation to generation. That's why even if you're second or third generation, people still identify as Irish because those things are what make people. People's personality comes from the experiences they have, and that is transmitted over the generations, whether we like it or not. And most of us do. We go back and we enjoy it and we identify with it. So for me, I had the confidence to to create Irish characters. Why? Because I'd grown up around them, even if they were in Liverpool. And I've been to Ireland a couple of times as an adult. And not, I, I, never was, I was never scared of it. I was scared of, I'll tell you what I was frightened of, that people in Ireland would say, nah, that's not a genuine voice. That doesn't come from here. I don't think that's the case. I've had quite a few people read it, even though it's in a draft form, and that doesn't come up. And glad of that, I'm kind of, I guess, I'm proud of that, because it is a product of that interrelated community, Liverpool, Ireland, Irish people. There's a kind of subtitle to the book. I don't know if it's, I don't even know if the publisher uh, will accept this or has accepted it, uh, Return of the Native. Okay. So it's across the water, Return of the Native. And wherever you are around the world, if you're not in Ireland, Ireland is across the water. And return of the native, no matter what generation you are, I think it's a journey we would all like to make. And if you're in Ireland, then I think this novel can also speak to you about that relationship. So just shifting a little bit, I'm mindful of not giving away any of the plot. So I, I want to talk about the book a bit more thematically. And key to the book is the year 1974. And 1974, of course, is an important year in Dublin. I was 10 years old at the time, and there was a horrendous bombing in in 1974. And I wonder why you chose that as one of the key elements of the book. What was the focus behind that, or what was the decision there? It's It's partly to show that the trauma exists in the South as well as the North, When people talk about the Troubles, they talk about history and politics in Ireland, then the focus is on the North, as it should be, and there's no question. But I also wanted to dig into a little bit that this isn't a once, there's trauma on all sides, including in the South. Another part of this is for readers in England, I think this is a hidden history. People in England will relate to the IRA bombs that went off in Manchester or Warrington or in London, in Docklands, but they don't know about the bombs that went off in Dublin as part of this thing called the Troubles. And it's redressing that balance. I think there's some learning, there's some history that people in the UK and in England have to look at. 
The uh, second part of this is, uh, I'm sure you're aware, but it's, again, in the UK, it's not so well known. British Security Service played a hand in lots of terrible things in the north of Ireland. And when I say security service, I don't mean cowboys, I don't mean renegades, state-sanctioned, government-supported events, killings, bombings, murders. Now, this isn't, I'm not trying to be histrionic or dramatic. These things are part of the public record now. There's the Barron report in, into those bombings in 1974, where 33 people were killed in the South, in Dublin and in Monaghan. And the details of it are awful to read, as they are with any atrocity. I'm not picking and choosing atrocities. If I am, it's in a sense of saying, look, I want to show that they did happen on all sides, and there's plenty of... Uh, plenty of responsibility to be spread around and some have taken that responsibility and some have apologized for the roles and the troubles from the loyalist community and from the nationalist community to be honest i haven't heard the british government apologize for the atrocities that it was directly responsible for that would be a nice thing sorry for getting a bit <laughs> no i certainly for an, an irish audience a republican audience that would Play quite nicely. It's interesting, of course, because British government policy during the Troubles was to treat members of the IRA as essentially criminal. And we can argue that back and forth. But yes, there's a failure. If that's the case, there's a failure to accept the British government's own criminal in terms of some of the stuff they did, in terms of liaising primarily with the loyalist community to carry out essentially undercover operations and extend, if you will, the reach of the war down into Dublin to destabilize support for the IRA. I think that's fairly clear what they were up to. We talk about the trauma that is experienced in Dublin or in Belfast or in Derry, but that trauma actually reached into your own family. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, when I was, uh, I think it was three days before my 15th birthday, my 19-year-old brother killed himself in Ebrington, Ebrington Barracks in uh, Derry, in the north of Ireland. Uh, he, yeah, he was 19. He joined the army as a boy soldier from Liverpool, from a Catholic background. But we had this thing that we were Catholic and not Irish, and that's how we were raised. So we went to a Catholic school, and we did the whole church thing, First Communion, all the normal Catholic stuff, but we weren't aware of Irish history and we didn't get it from my mum or my dad. They were normal people, not particularly political, working class, getting on with raising eight kids. And in the mid-1970s, my brother left school as a young kid. And he was also actually, I know this is a bit weird, but it's true, he was a supporter of Enoch Powell at the time. Powell famously, rivers of blood, racist, and supporter of the, the orange in the north of Ireland. And my brother actually got into that for whatever reason. And he joined the British Army. And he joined when he was 16, I think it was. And by the time he was 19, he was dead. He uh, served in Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how long uh, the tours of duty weren't that long in those days because people couldn't take it physically or mentally. Soldiers would be destroyed by the experience. And yeah, so that was, yeah, that was Ireland, as you say, reaching into our family in Liverpool. For me, it's like, uh, it's the centre of the three books, if you like, 
because it is that. My dad coming from Ireland to Liverpool to look for work. My mum's family were from the same town, but they came a generation earlier, if you like. Then growing up in Liverpool, growing up in England as English kids, Catholic, Irish ancestry, but as English kids, and then my brother joining the British Army. Imagine being in the north of Ireland in Derry. I've been to Derry and the streets of the Bogside are very much like under the bridge in Garston. Long rows of terraced houses. The people would have been the same. The family names would have been the same. And so to have been on the streets doing what we know that he was doing as a part of the British occupation force. I wrote a poem much later as an adult. I don't know where it is now, but it was called The Mirror Cracked. And I think that, for me, sums up how he must have eventually felt. I don't know. You can't get in someone's head exactly why. But the trauma of realising that you're in an army facing people who bear the same names, who look like you, who speak like you, who you get to realise you are part of, then, you know, kid of 19, how traumatic must that have been? So... The books are a way of exploring that because it's real. And this uh, symbiotic connection, if you like, between the people of Ireland and the people, places like Liverpool, is very real. Whatever happens to the governments, and those connections still exist and will continue, I'm sure, to carry on existing. I'm sorry that you and your family were exposed to that. It's a tragedy. I think wars are fought by rich people. People of more modest circumstances in many times ultimately are the victims of that. And what we're talking about is a young boy that was still finding his way. Whatever about his politics, whatever about him like Enoch Powell, River of Blood, whatever about his conflict exactly. as an Irishman versus an Englishman. Sadly, he didn't have the time to be able to figure that out. And, and I think to some degree, your books now are a tribute to all these kind of conflicting elements, certainly as a member of, of the Irish diaspora. So I think you're, you do great credit to him. It's like, it's getting to the reality of these things. And I mentioned earlier that one of the things I don't like is the romanticism of the Irish, the leprechauns and the shamrock and all that kind of stuff. And we have to look. It's a hundred years. This is the decade of centenaries, where a hundred years from 1916 onwards, there was a struggle for the end of English domination or occupation of Ireland. And that was a traumatic, long drawn out struggle and we're a hundred years on from that and it's Sinn Féin could be in government in Ireland in the next 10 years and I think we all have a responsibility to look back you know was okay so the British were kicked out one of the things I don't like is when Irish people blame British and British people for everything and yes the British occupation in the north was wrong and terrible and even as a kid I wanted the British troops out of Ireland which wasn't that popular a position to have in the 70s in factories in England but by the same token just raising the green flag is not the answer and I think when Sinn Féin are looking at power in the next 10 years I think is possible and credible then people need to look at what do we actually need in order to change the lives of the majority of people you mentioned the economics earlier and the 50s and the 40s and the 50s, the lack of economic progress in Ireland was because you had a liberation that was half a liberation. 
it got rid of the British landlord, but what did it replace it with? And that needs looking at. And I think my book should be, if anything, seen as a contribution to that conversation, as well as really good mysteries. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's why I, I like uh, your books. We have a mystery playing on one level, but also these kind of complex themes playing out. And, and I do really enjoy the grit of your books. It is not clearly starry-eyed leprechaun romanticism as you find in some of the diaspora literature written about Ireland. So that's really good. And just talking about grit, you really come at these things. I really get the vibe of kind of a more left-wing, middle-class, working-class view comes through. So, for example, you have... The character Barlow, who is in the police department in London, who is clearly this kind of right-wing nationalist. His character is primarily set in the 1970s in this story. And so now, flash forward almost 50 years later, we see this kind of rather ugly nationalism playing out, I believe, in England. Was that one of the things that you really wanted to bring to the forefront of this kind of harnessing of union-busting pro-capitalism, Union Jack-waving kind of guy that's gone rogue within the police department. Yes, uh, the the three books uh, generally address the question of the end of it, which seems a really strange thing, because surely the British Empire has been over for a long time. After the Second World War, you had India and many countries in Africa, Kenya and so on, declaring and winning their independence. There was a couple of points. One, they had to win it generally. <laughs> Nothing was given back to people. People had to take it from the British states. But just like I was saying earlier about growing up uh, with Irish parentage or in an Irish community, you imbue some of the values and some of the proclivities, if you like, or, of, of the culture of your parents and their community. The empire may have begun to shatter after the Second World War. Its remnants live on in the ideas and the ideology of UK culture. And yes, I think that the Brexit uh, vote was an expression of that. That doesn't mean I'm a huge fan of what goes on in Brussels or anything like that. But I think there's always the danger of... Because we still have that culture, it's still a part of us, and people still promote it, whether you're in America, you're in Ireland, you're in the UK, wherever you are. There will be people who will say, what we need to do is rally around the flag, and there's always something else, someone else, who is the problem. And the more we rally around the flag, the better things will get. Actually, that's not true. And we have enough examples of that from our history. But there's never a problem in retelling that, I think, and for the modern times, because it hasn't gone away, no matter how much people think we make progress and we move forward and society's a fairer, juster place, then we're never very far away from somebody running that flag up and starting to draw people to it again. And yeah, I, I think The End of Empire covers the three books in terms of consciousness, and the issues that we have to deal with as populations around the world. So in the UK, it's the end of empire. In America, you could say the same, the end of an economic empire from the end of the Second World War when America came large on the international stage to now where it's struggling on that level. As a American citizen, I'm not giving up on it yet. And I'm assuming <laughs> as a British citizen, you're not giving up on Britain yet. No. I, th I think these are points of transition. 
they are tricky points. And from my point of view, uh, ridding ourselves of the worst toxins of nationalism is going to be an important element of finding a future and finding a way forward. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to draw this conversation to a close. And I'd like to thank you for coming on and talking a little bit about the themes in your new book, Across the Water, that is published by Orthodox Press. I believe the book is coming out on March 17th on St. Patrick's Day. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So if you want to do something to support a struggling Irish writer, Irish English global writer, then look us up, get the book. And thanks, Martin. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Jack. Hey, it's Martin again. I hope you enjoyed that check-in episode with Jack Byrne. If you did, can you share our episode page on your social media? You'll find all our episodes on irishstewpodcast.com. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. <laughs>